Hello and welcome once again to episode 95 of Code Completion. We are a group of iOS developers and educators hoping to share what we love most about development, Apple technology, and completing your code. My name is Dimitri and I'll be your host once again for this episode and I'm joined today by my fellow completionist, Spencer. Hey there. So as people get more and more used to SwiftUI, we thought it would be a good time to go over how views and layout work in UIKit. Uh, since SwiftUI uses UIKit under the hood, uh, and that's just a reality that you just have to get used to. Yeah. Yeah, it's, um, I, I don't know, we're, we're approaching this interesting point where people are probably going to be learning uh, SwiftUI first as opposed to UIKit. And so, like Dimitri said, maybe they're missing a little bit of knowledge that would help them uh, in SwiftUI itself or... Uh, just, I mean, it. I feel I feel like history is repeating itself. Where you know, we tell our students, "Hey, if you're working on an app that's more than at that time, like four years, four or five years old, you're going to be using Objective C." But now it's if you're using an app that's more than a couple of years old, it's probably going to have uh, some UI kit in it, right? So uh, having that knowledge of kind of what came before the current hotness uh, is is <laughs> definitely a good idea, I think. Uh, even if it's you know just a little bit, just enough to be dangerous, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And I have a I have a few older apps that uh, Lynn and I were thinking, oh, maybe we can resurrect these. Um, and the first thing I thought of was like, oh, like you'll need to get comfortable with UIKit since you've been doing a lot of SwiftUI lately. If you want to like mm. even understand what's going on in these code bases, and then I realized it's also all in Objective C. So oh. <laughs> it's probably going to need a complete rewrite at this point. Um, especially when, when like some of the projects were written in like iOS three days. Um, and, uh, that's some, that's some crusty code there that needs some, uh, some rethinking for the most part. Um, so yeah, that's, that's what we can hope to kind of go over the general mental model of UIKit today. Um, mm -hmm. and what better place to start there than uh core animation because at the at the end of the day ui kit is fundamentally dependent on core animation for almost everything ui kit provides a user interface kit on top of core animation um and perhaps if we refer to core animation's beta name which was layer kit it would make more sense why this is um and that's because core animation has a robust rendering engine that has a concept of a layer, um, and these layers can be uh, basically uh, placed on top of each other, embedded into one another, uh, and everything kind of comes out of that um, as as a base mental model. Yeah, uh, yeah. To be honest, like I, I think that's even where my my own experience is. A little bit lacking because you know the most that I've really dove into, well, layers specifically is doing things like you know um, when you want to animate the background color of a view, it's easy because you can just say you have you know my view dot background color equals whatever. But if you want to get into the uh, the corner radius or uh, the border width or uh, border color or anything, you need to dive into the views layer, right? And then that's where you can start accessing those properties. And so diving into that and things like core animations own um, slightly more, at least to me, complex animations like CA basic animations and 
uh, that's the only one that I can think of off the top of my head, um, are a little bit more work, but um, I'd assume that all of the like UI view dot anime are using core animation behind the scenes. And of course I'm, I'm also sure that core animation is the thing that's uh, driving all of the animations that we see in iOS in general. Yeah. Um, and, and so let, let's go into how core animation works a tiny bit. So that way we can get a good idea of like what's going on here. Um, and it all starts with a root layer uh, that has like it contains everything else basically and every other layer will be a child or sub layer of that root layer uh, in some way um, and this root layer is what you, represents your app like as a whole um, and that layer is often passed in ios's case to uh, springboard to be rendered um, like you're not actually rendering your layer contents the operating system's uh, like parent process for the windows server is what's rendering it um, and macOS actually went through a similar change like about a year or two years ago, uh, where prior to that, um, like in the very early days, it was your view that was rendering a layer. Um, and then later it became your window that was rendering a layer. And then later after that, it became the window server that's rendering your layers. Um, and what this means is that more and more of the rendering got pushed out of your app and into the operating system and therefore it could do more efficient things as a result of that. Mm. Um but these layers really do create a foundational like representation of it. Now, a layer at the end of the day is just a like bitmap. It's a it's an image, um, and it will render that image according to uh, a frame, basically. Um, and that is at its simplest what a layer is. Now, layers also have a bunch of uh, whimsical controls uh, like background color corner radius, border, mm -hmm. shadows, um, and all of these are hardware accelerated, meaning that uh, you don't need to like do anything special to animate these properties. The system will take care of figuring out how to uh, transition and render these very effectively without needing to render like a shadow on the CPU and then put it on the GPU. Um, now, sometimes it needs to do that, but oftentimes it doesn't, which means that you can get a lot of things for free, like corner radius, for instance, uh, mm -hmm. where you can just apply it on your on your layer, uh, and then you'll get a free corner radius. Um, and uh, UI view, which UIKit provides, is just a wrapper on top of a layer. It has a layer as a as a sub property, um, and all of its methods basically route down to the layer. Uh, to do interesting things. Like if you set the background color on a UI view, uh, instead of needing to figure out how to get a CG color and pass that to the layer, the UI view will just do that for you. It'll take your UI color and translate it. Um, mm -hmm. But it doesn't necessarily have all those accessors. So like things like corner radius and stuff are not directly accessible on the UI view. But that's okay because all the accessors that it provides do is call on the layer anyways. So you can just go ahead and say view.layer uh, dot corner radius or view dot layer dot shadow uh, and access those properties directly right yeah so <clears throat> i guess with with that like essentially everything that ui view does is just i mean it's just really obfuscating kind of the complexity out of accessing parts of a layer or anything mm -hmm. at kind of the core animation level that's really all we're doing there yeah um, okay. And it provides a bunch of helper like methods to 
kind of bridge the gap that core animation uh, either provides or does not provide. So, uh, for instance, uh, UI view gives us a great way of drawing views, right? CA layer uh, does not have a robust story there. It just basically says, hey, you can give me contents and I will display them. Uh, and that's mm-hmm. basically how it displays stuff on screen. Uh, it uploads a texture to the GPU and puts it on a on a rectangle that you provide. Um, but with UIKit, you can go ahead and have a draw rect call um, that you can go ahead and hook into. Uh, it handles events for you. Um, it's going to go ahead and uh, respond to layout accurately. Um, so UIView is doing a lot, um, okay. but it's it's all routing down to core animation under the hood. Um, much like SwiftUI is routing down to UIKit under the hood. Um, so SwiftUI... You might have seen, like, no matter how many views you have, it does not necessarily correspond to UI views. But at the end of the day, you're still going to have UI views that are going to represent your hosting view, for instance. Um, and then anytime you bring in things like buttons and stuff, you're going to have views for those buttons and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So uh, in the end, it's still going to uh, render out UI kit views, which at the end of the day will render out core animation layers uh, to, <laughs> right, yeah. to have things. Uh, be displayed properly. Yeah. So I guess talk, talking more about view drawing, we've got, um, like you mentioned, the, the, wow, now I'm, I just forgot. Is it just draw and rect? Draw, draw rect. rect. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. It's, it's been a while. Okay. Mm-hmm. But I mean, that would be like, you know, we can, I, I don't know. I feel like Swift UI is pretty, um, pretty uh, set up to allow for complex uh, and kind of custom views. There's a lot of kind of manipulation you can do with that. But mm-hmm. um, kind of before that, you know, drawing uh, just your draw rec method would be kind of the way that we did it. And I think for me, I, I haven't used it a ton, but one um, example of when I found it to be quite powerful and kind of, to I suppose, see what it could be would be... Um, we made a clock app um, in at Lambda School where it was, you know, redrawing the the view every second, and that's not hard, right? You have a thousand milliseconds to draw that. That's not complex. But what was cool was we were doing a fair amount of math and and calculation to figure out, you know, what was the angle of the second hand and the hour hand and the minute hand, um, and we were drawing out a a completely, you know, custom. Uh, view that you know without any of that drawing code would just be blank but then we kind of were drawing using you know ui bezier paths and all that stuff to sort of define what the view looked like instead of using those those properties like background color corner radius all of that stuff we we Mm -hmm. kind of took back that control and said no i want to be completely uh in control of this and um you know that was one example we made another example of using UI Bezier paths to uh, draw a, you know, a, a company logo, whether it was like the Lambda School logo at the time or whatever it was, um, you have all of that flexibility if you want to, uh, I suppose, go that far. Um, now, I suppose that isn't to say that SwiftUI doesn't have that as well. You can do that with paths as well. But um, DrawRect, I think, is really where, you know, if you wanted to do something super custom in uh, UIK, it was most definitely possible to have something be um, both look and, and behave in, in kind of a, your own way. 
using that yeah. like UI, custom UI control. Mm -hmm. And I think the the thing to to note between like something like SwiftUI and something like UIKit there um, is SwiftUI is giving you just like Core Animation gives you a few like whimsical properties that are hardware accelerated. SwiftUI is giving you a lot more of these, um, mm -hmm. and it's giving you so much more of these that you really don't need to drop down to that custom view drawing level yeah. uh, very much even anymore. Uh, even though you still do for like a lot of much more complex cases, but for the simple cases, you really don't, which is why SwiftUI feels a lot more freeing than something like UIKit, where it's like, oh no, I want, I want to have, uh, something a slightly, a slightly off, uh, here. I'm going to need to make yeah. my own UI view subclass. I'm going to need to figure out how to do draw rect performantly, um, and all of that. And that is when you start to dig into the weeds uh versus just like saying oh i'm just gonna say dot background circle and then dot clip path and then do whatever you want to do with swift ui mm -hmm. uh make a mess of views that are not going to render out into individual views it's just gonna be rendered as one drawing pass um right. which at the end of the day is the same thing right um so uh that's that's like the major difference and the way uh ui kit does this is uh, every time you, like, say for your clock example, right, you might have properties for second, minute, hour. Um, and anytime you change those properties, you say second plus equals one. Uh, in the did set for second, you might say, uh, well, view dot or self dot uh, set needs display. And what right. set needs display does is it sets a flag on the view that on the next lay on the next uh, run loop pass, we want to go ahead and um render this um and the reason why we use something like set needs display is so that way if multiple things change like the seconds change and then the minute changes and then the hour changes you're not going to render it three times you're just right. going to end up needing to render it once um so uh this sets a flag it's basically just a bool of needs display because you're calling set needs display um and that will go ahead and uh be set to true uh, and then on the next run loop pass, the view will go ahead and uh, schedule itself to go ahead and re-render. And it does this by calling draw rect. Um, and then draw rect will basically just call your code to go ahead and uh, re-render what it needs to re-render. Um, and then once uh, you do all your drawing code, uh, it will go ahead and collect that into an image and then set that image on the layer that the view owns. Um, and then that layer will go ahead and be updated uh, in core animation to actually be shown on the screen. I guess the whole thing with that is you can do like, I, I really like that you mentioned this, the flexibility with Swift UI, where it's a lot less common that you would have to drop down into doing something like providing your own path for drawing as opposed to in UI kit. Um, there have already been a couple times in in my day job where, like, we have a custom slider, and really it's it's a slider, but it looks different, right? Functionally, it's it's a slider, but mm -hmm. per our design guidelines, it's not it's not the same. And we had to you know create an entire UI control subclass and and you know draw draw everything ourselves. So it definitely feels less like you're wasting time when you have something that you're going to reuse like that. Like, you're going to have that slider all sure. over the place, right? Sure. Um, but then when you have, like, a one-off, like, oh, a profile view that you're not using anywhere else, mm. uh, then it feels, like, <laughs> super wasteful to make that one, like, subclass that's just doing that when 
uh, you could do it very quickly in something like SwiftUI. And I feel like that's that's where SwiftUI like really shines is when you have those like very simple one-off things. It's, it yeah. turns out to be just like five to ten lines of code and it looks perfect and you didn't even have like a design spec to start with. You're just like uh-huh. fiddling with it as you go and you're like, mm, yeah, this is this yes, is what my mind's is- eye is seeing. Um <laughs> Uh, and that, that is how you can get, uh, to a very good outcome based on that. Um, and with UI kit, it's unfortunate that you have to do a little bit more, but that's what Swift UI, the framework is doing, right? It's writing the UI kit code so that way you don't have to. Um, yeah. A big thing about that is like laying things out, right? Like you can just put things on the screen on a storyboard, but you also have you know, things like frames and bounds and string uh, springs and struts and auto layout and all of these things that kind of uh, are not really a thing in Swift UI where we just kind of say, mm-hmm. hey, uh, put these things here. Here's a spacer to drop it down to the bottom of the screen and you're good. Uh, there's a lot of different ways of laying things out in, in, um, in UI kit. So, um, yeah, why don't we walk through them, I suppose. Yeah, so let's start with my favorite one, which is manual layout. Uh, So manual layout uh, is basically taking the concept that you are going to decide where everything goes, uh, and you're going to decide this with math. Um, uh, And (laughs) the the wonderful thing about this is it's straightforward, and you understand what's going on. uh, And you can do pretty much anything you want as a result of this. So uh, let's step back a bit and talk about how... UI kit positions things on screen. Um, and this all goes down to uh, a view's frame and its bounds. So its frame is its position within its parent's context. So uh, right. in the context of a UI view, you have a super view. Uh, and that super view um, has its own like position. Say it's the window. Okay, it's, It matches the screen. Uh, so your view's frame dictates where it is on that screen. Now, if you have a view inside of your view, that view's frame is within your view, um, whatever the context of that is. Now, the bounds uh, represents the coordinate system from within the view. So uh, your view, for instance, it might have a frame with an X and Y of 200 pixels, which means it's 200 pixels to the left and 200 pixels down from the top left corner. Um, But its bounds is going to have an X and Y of zero because the starting point for any subviews is going to be at the top left portion of your view. Um, Now, that doesn't mean that bounds always has a starting point of zero. Like, there are many cases where it doesn't, and we'll get into those a little bit later. Um, But uh, that tends to be how you are going to go ahead and calculate the frames of subviews. You're going to do that based on the bounds of the parent of the, the super view. Um, and then that basically goes all the way down. So uh, when it comes down to you wanting to position something, all you have to do is calculate the frames of your subviews based on the bounds of the parent view. Um, and if this means like putting three views side by side uh, and taking up the whole width of the screen, then you take your uh, super views bounds dot width, you divide that by three, and that's going to be the width of each of your three subviews. Um, and then the first subview is going to be an, an X of zero. The second one is going to be at an X of one third of the total bounds. Uh, and the second one is going to be at two thirds of the total bounds. Um, and you position three things side by side. And that's as simple as that. 
if you want to add padding, then you need to start like throwing some math into right. there. So you take that bounds and you subtract 20 on each side. Uh, and then you do those further calculations with that and you push everything by 20. Um, and then that's where most people get afraid of the math because it's no longer like very simple, um, a single, single operation, um, like calculations that you're doing. It's now multiple operation calculations and multiple steps involved. And worst of all, it gets hard to follow, like, as you're just looking at it. Like, once you write all the code, you might be satisfied that works. And then when you go back to it in three months and you look at it, you're like, hmm, yeah, I'm not exactly sure why there's, like, 17 operations here. And it, it works, but I don't know how to update it. Like, where is the left padding? Uh, so if you are doing any manual layout like this, do name your magic numbers. Um, and yeah. I mean this in that... Like, have constants for a margin uh, that you just declare one line above. It doesn't matter that it's, like, in a magic place of constants. That's not the point of this. But the point of it is you can go ahead and see that the the calculation for that first subview is going to be uh, superview.bounds.width minus margins times 2. So you subtract margins on each side. Uh, right. And that becomes a readable sentence at that point um, that you can then divide by 3. Um, which that three can be number of subviews. Um, and then it doesn't matter if it's three. It can be 17 if you want, um, and the math would still work. Uh, so that's why you likely want to name your name your variables a little bit more uh, than you otherwise would if you're doing manual layout because you can get very lost in the future when you need to deal with it again, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, another thing with that is like, and I, I've experienced this myself, so I'm, this is kind of like a leading question here. But like, uh, okay, let's say that you you set those three views there, but then you like rotate the screen, and then everything changes, right? Now the width of the the screen is now like one and a half times what it was. What do you do then with manual layout? Yeah. So that part one is positioning things when you create them. Part two is actually updating it as things around it change. Um, and the way you do this is with uh, layout subviews. So layout subviews is a method that the system will call, um, and it's actually where auto layout is completely implemented. So uh, if you don't override layout subviews, auto layout will do its thing in there and you'll be good. But if you are not using auto layout, then this is where you can go ahead and do all the calculations. And oftentimes I will go ahead and say, only do the calculations in layout subviews. Mm. That way you don't have to have them twice. Um, so you just make all your views, you add them as subviews, and then in layout subviews, that's when you will lay out your subviews, right? Um, and all you have to do is say uh, subview1.bounds equals the the mathematical equation that determines exactly where its bound, where its frame should be. Um, did I say dot bounds? I meant dot frame. Uh, subview1.frame equals uh, superview.bounds, right. like minus padding uh, divided by three or whatever. Um, so if you do it all in there, then everything will react no matter how big the superview gets. Because every time the superview changes its bounds, which anytime you change its frame to be smaller, its bounds will also be smaller. It's going to go ahead and tell its subviews, hey, the layout changed. Go ahead and lay out your subviews. Um, and therefore, it will go ahead and reposition everything. Now, if you don't subclass UI views, you can have uh, view will layout and view did layout on the view controller. Um, and that's mm -hmm. another great place to go ahead and do everything for the view controller in there. 
Um, and the magic with like manual layout is say, for instance, that uh, the, the user rotated to landscape. Um, and say that some devices have more landscape than others. Um, so you want to conditionally show stuff on some devices and not on others. Well, you can just have an if statement. You can have an if statement if the bounds.width is bigger than 450. Uh, very arbitrary number, but that's the goal is you are allowed arbitrary numbers here. You're not mm-hmm. like strictly limited to things like size classes, which uh, are endlessly frustrating because it seems like they change yeah. all the time and they're not like with respect to actually how much space there is. Um, it's just like a whimsical decision on Apple's part. So this gives you complete control and you can go ahead and do whatever you want at that point. Right. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. That's, that was kind of my whole thing was like the times that I have, you know, done a one-off, uh, setting of a frame or something. I haven't used those, uh, methods like, um, layout subviews or, or view a layout subviews or whatever. And it's like, Oh crap, this only works in one very, very specific, um, uh, sort of parent view frame or, or bounds. And then, you know, it all goes out the window when you try to rotate the screen. I remember that happening very early on, um, in, in my learning experience. So, um, another one that I, I honestly, I haven't used very much and I think was perhaps more common earlier and, or maybe in, if you were doing Mac OS development were springs and struts. That's, I understand sort of the concept of them and, and, uh, there's kind of a, a cool animation that, you can see when you change the springs and struts in um, in the storyboard of kind of like how the view will interact. But um, my experience there is is really limited. Yeah, so let's start with why they're called springs and struts. And that's because that little animation used to just be a little spring and a little strut, uh, meaning one part is flexible and one part is not. Um, right. And that was a very easy conceptual way of like determining how the next layout pass is going to change based on the previous one. So um, back in early macOS days, you had relatively simple layouts. Like you want these buttons to stay on the right side of your window. So as you resize Mm -hmm. your window, you want the buttons to stay there, right? Um, So you'd do this by saying the right and bottom edges are going to be struts and the top and left edges are going to be springs. Um, and the width is going to be a strut as well, the width and height. So the button stays the same size because the width and height are struts. It stays in the bottom right because you define those as struts. But then the top and left is completely flexible. Um, and this is a very easy way of like skipping that manual layout pass and not doing the math for something very straightforward. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's basically always been there and it's still available today. Um, especially if you, all you want is like your sub view to be the same size as your super view, just say it has a flexible width and height and you're done basically. Mm -hmm. Um, the downside of this, however, is it's based on the previous position. So as you resize, it takes the old position, applies, uh, springs and struts to it, uh, as a magical little powder, uh, and then you get your new position out of it. But this gets out of sync, like over time, say you have like a window, uh, and you have a, a button that needs to like grow with the window, but it has a fixed margin on either side, right? So you have a fixed left and right strut, but then the width of the button is a spring. So as you change your window size, the button will change with the window, but it will still be the same distance from the window's edges. 
Now, you can get to a point where you make the window ever so slightly too small and your button, like, collapses on itself, right? Oh, okay. um, Now, when it collapses on itself, it might change its margins because it has to. It can't be smaller than zero. So now the right margin or the left margin is going to be sacrificed as you continue dragging uh, your window. Now, as you make your window big again, that sacrifice is going to stay because the new springs and struts calculation is going to be based on that previous position that it just ended up in. Um, and that's where things kind of go out of whack. Now, this happens way less regularly on iOS where like you don't have free resizing, uh, first of all. Um, but you soon will uh, as of like iPad OS. Um, right. Though it seems like it's not free resizing. Like there are like fixed positions and things like fade in and out like very awkwardly. Um, yeah, I don't know what's going on with the stage manager thing. Um, but yeah, it, it seems like it's going to take some intermediate steps before we get live window resizing uh, technology from the who knows when. Um yeah, from like, the 80s. Well, I, um, it's not actually from the 80s. So like the, the very early user interfaces, I don't know if you remember, but when you resize the window, you're not resizing the window. You're resizing a, a weirdly outlined shade of the window yeah, until you release your, your mouse. And then it's like, oh, your new window position is right here. Yes. Uh, because it couldn't do live resizing. Uh, and I think iOS started from essentially the same like opinion. These devices were so slow, no one really trusted them to do live resizing of anything um and when the ipad came out like that was just the assumption so when the ipad mm-hmm. added like oh you can have two apps side by side and you can drag to uh resize them it's like mm. the developers probably didn't think of what will happen if uh, no. there's a live resizing animation between these two states so we're just gonna fade uh and that fading has like stuck ever since so um yeah. even though the system is likely more than capable of it thanks to core animation being super fast uh that is not a tested scenario and therefore it's not something that uh we have to this day unfortunately yeah so with springs and struts then aside from like you said maybe your one example of um just basically pinning a view uh mm-hmm. more or less to to its super view is there any reason to use them at all now um like it? i would I would say not, and that's because Auto Layout, which we can jump into right now, uh, yeah. got quite a few upgrades over the years that make it a lot less crazy to use. Um, and therefore, I would go ahead and say, like, you probably want to just use that um, or make some simple helpers if you need to do common cases. Uh, that way, you can go ahead and not uh, need to rely on strengths and struts anymore because they do have that one big downside where if things get uh crazy then they're gonna stay crazy and they're not gonna fix mm-hmm. themselves uh what auto layout does really well is it uh instead of describing how things should update it describes exactly where things should be so it's going back to the mathematical representation but without as much math um now the problem with auto layout is to use it well you do need still need to understand what the math is doing because Mm -hmm. it is a system of uh what's the what's the correct term here it's a bunch of uh it's a system of linear um equations equations that it's like solving in real time um and you need to like have some conceptual notion of that to use it effectively past like Mm -hmm. the super 
basics of it. Um, so the way auto layout works is you basically can go ahead and say like, hey, this view, uh, it's going to be 20 points away from my left side and zero points away from my right side. Uh, and if that's all you specify, then by definition, the middle is going to be flexible, right? Um, and then the right side view, uh, that one might say I'm going to be Oh, it's already zero points away from its left side because you just said that with the other one. Um, but mm. this one has 300 points of a width, and that's all you specify. Um, and then on the right side, you have a third view, and that one is going to be uh, 20 points from the left side one. Um, it's going to match the width of the left side one, uh, and then it's going to be 20 points to the right side. Now, if you specified every single thing in an axis such that there is only one place where things like are undefined, then it can calculate that one place via linear equation. So it can say solve for X, X being the width of that view, and it will be able to do that. Um, if you specify an X for that view, like in that process, the X becomes the size of your super view um, and so on and so forth, because it goes all the way up to the window. If you forget to specify even one of these aspects, Auto layout breaks down. It has to like yeah. make, make a guess as to what you were trying to do because you didn't provide enough information. So in the very simple case of you want your your one subview to be like contained within margins of your parent view, all you need to do is give it a trailing and a uh, a leading or a leading and a trailing, I should say, um, like constraints, and then the rest it can figure out based on the super view. Um, but if you need to do something complex, you need to make sure that within a single access, you provide enough instructions, but not too many instructions, uh, that it can figure it out exactly because there's only one solution. Uh, anytime there's more than one solution, that's where the system will say like, Hey, you didn't provide enough constraints or anytime there's too many solutions, um, or not enough solutions because it can't solve it. It's going to try breaking a constraint to get there. Um, and you can control how things break by like setting priorities and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and then you get into the inequality operators and uh, the the content hugging and then the compression resistance uh, and all of that. And all of this boils down to just a set of equations that all need to be like managed at once. And if you understand those equations, auto layout is like, duh, like, why don't you see this? But if you don't understand the equations and you can't remember, is content hugging like the bigger equal one or is it the smaller <laughs> equal one? And yeah. then you're just like completely lost and it, none of it makes sense. So uh, I tend to just reach for the manual layout because at the end of the day, it's the same thing. Like if you need to understand math for this, might as well just write math uh, because it's a lot less finicky at that point. Um, but if you want to do simple things, uh, then I would prefer auto layout over springs and struts uh, just because it's a little more... Uh, robust when it comes down to like things falling apart um, and you can get you can like one up it but if you need to do complex things where you're like changing layout drastically based on the size of a parent then you can probably uh, give up on auto layout because it's not going to provide like there are no if statements there and you can get a little bit crazy with um, the greater equal uh, type constraints but then they tend not to work like you think they work um, because of at the end of the day needing to like it's not a valid constraint unless you have a different one that's like hitting up against it at exactly one point um, if there's any ambiguity then that's where uh, things break down because by definition there has to be no ambiguity 
Um, so yeah, those are my thoughts on auto layout. Uh, take that for what you for what it's worth. No, I I, I think you're right. I think um, it's most definitely the the more complex system for laying out your views. Uh, there's power there, but there's also dragons there. So uh, kind of a trade off. Um, it's definitely the form of of you know laying out views that I have the most experience with out of all the ones we've talked about. Um, most probably just because of when I came on to iOS development in general. Um, you know, springs and struts weren't really anything we talked about. Frames and bounds also weren't really. I mean, we talked about them, but not much in the sense of uh, writing entire apps with with frames and bounds because we just used auto layout. So. Um, I think for me, the thing that helped me sort of understand, like Dimitri said, solving for these linear, solving these linear equations is like making like every, um, constraint that you add is sort of like a relationship between one view and another or one view mm -hmm. and another thing, right? Whether it's, yeah. um, your, your safe area or another view or whatever, but you, there's a really good, um, I'll put, we'll put it in the show notes, but there's a really good, um, online Apple documentation, um, website that talks about, I think it's called the anatomy of a constraint, if I remember right. And it goes into like each part of those, um, each part of it, essentially that equation that you make when you make an NS layout constraint, uh, that breaks it down into the multiplier, the constant, the, the view one, view two, what its attribute is, but also it shows like the, uh, parts of a uh, of a view that you can constrain like the the height the width the you know uh whatever leading trailing top bottom not a constraint like there's there's a lot to it it's by far the most complex system that we've talked about here and there's a lot of power there but it's also super hard to kind of get your head around and to this day like dimitri said the like uh hugging priority and the uh, compression resistance priority like I have to look those up all the time because I'll just sit there in, in the storyboard and say, is it 751 or 749 that I need to do? Because 750 doesn't work or whatever. And mm -hmm. yeah, There's a lot there. But um, I think it's, I mean, I don't know. I Maybe I'm a little biased because it's the one that I've used the most. But um, that's where out of these I would feel the most comfortable personally. So, mm -hmm. And it's it's a little unfortunate that like constraints are so heavily reliant on math because like you said if you go to the the documentation it shows you the math and then it's like aha like it makes sense it makes sense mm -hmm. that content uh hugging or content resistance and the hugging priority content hugging and compression, compression resistance, resistance blah, yeah. blah. Uh, it makes sense that those are the equations that they are however uh -huh. Uh, if math does not make sense to you, if you did not do well in geometry class, um, because at the end of the day, it's, it's not like complex math, but it is, you need to have a robust understanding of like how things work in a visual space with regard to the numbers uh -huh. that like control it. Um, and yeah. that's not something that everyone is just trained to do, right? It's something that you need to, you need to get used to. And it's something that you need to understand at a fundamental level if you're going to make heads or tails out of this. Um, and it's unfortunate that auto layout is like the tool that just thrusts upon you an interface builder and is like, Oh, pick a number. And it's like, I don't remember which number <laughs> because like this, this nicely worded phrase of compression resistance. Um, like it doesn't necessarily have enough information for my brain to figure out what, how that relies 
like yeah. connects to a number, right? Um, and that's where like Apple could do more. Like they can add that little extra little bit of documentation. Like a lot of those things, if you hover over them, it tells you what yeah. it is. Um, like they could go ahead and give you that little equation right then and there, and then be ah, that's what I need to like fiddle for. Um, but as well, like the number one like sticking point that beginners have like like fallen apart with is whenever they try to use auto layout in storyboards, they have this crazy UI that they set up for themselves, and then the auto layout just does not work for them. Um, yeah. And like, say you finally do get it to work, and you need to add one label. Uh, that's when it just completely falls apart yet again because there's no easy way to really describe this visually. Like, uh, you might be able to say, like, oh, like, if you remember the fact that across an axis, you need to make sure to have a constraint all the way through. And then vertically, you need to have a constraint all the way through. But that gets very hard when you have more complex layouts. Um, And for this reason, like, to this day, I basically tell everyone, don't rely on uh, storyboards. Because they have, they make things seem easier than they are. And therefore... Mm -hmm you end up tripping on it a lot more. Like even uh, professionals will just go ahead and like forego this because it's not worth the pain and frustration of needing to like make one change because you can't see everything that you're changing all at once because it's hidden from you. Like by definition, it's only what you're selected that you're going to see because it's a lot of visual clutter otherwise. Um, So that's where uh, like describing these in code really... Uh, helps and that's why apple has iterated on how you describe it in code quite a bit like at first it started with the ascii visual language uh which was a nice attempt but again it's (laughs) one more thing to like learn and it's one more thing that the compiler can't help you with until you build and run so that was a failed attempt um though it is used when it's describing like quite successfully it's when it's describing an error it will go ahead and use this ASCII mm-hmm. language to kind of tell yes. you like how things are how constraints are set up and where things are breaking and that's as useful as it can be in the console so uh, that's what it is um, so there's that then afterwards you can make constraints yourself with NS layout constraint um, and describe the first view and the second view the multiplier the constant uh, but then you have no visual like correspondation to anything Um, And then finally, we ended up with anchors. And anchors are great because you can go ahead and say, like, view1.leading.constraint equal to view2.trailing. And that becomes super clear because then you have view2.trailing plus the constant is equal to view1.leading. And I mean super clear in that everything is backwards. And people often get the constant, like, (laughs) sign flipped because they are like misconstruing how it's put together um, mm-hmm. because it's not like there's no like rhyme or reason for it to be one way or the other so it's like whatever your brain thinks of the first time and then that mistake is forever forever with you right um, yeah. so I say that Apple should take one further step and use uh, like Swift's DSLs to have a mm-hmm. like declarative way of describing these constraints based on anchors but then you can say something very clear like view2.trailing equals view1.leading plus five and then it's like it's not ambiguous at all like how all that's put together um and that's something that you could potentially describe with 
um, like those that DSL and result builders and stuff like this. Um, but uh, for what it's worth, the anchors are not too bad. And if you need to describe a view, you just need to specify at minimum four anchors uh, based on its super view and you're good. Um, if you have multiple views involved, then you have a, uh, what's it called? NS layout constraint dot activate with a mm-hmm. big array of a bunch array, of yeah. anchors. Uh, but at least you can kind of organize that as best as you can. And it's easier to go ahead and insert things when you need to insert them because you can go ahead and see all the constraints at once because they're all there. They're all declared in one place. Um, yeah. Now this, this whole thing, it gets crazy as, as mentioned, especially if I want to build a toolbar and I have 17 subviews that I just want next to each other. Well, Apple has a solution for that and it is called a stack view. Uh, and stack views are awesome because they get rid of all, most of your need for auto layout, um, beyond positioning a sub view within a super view. That's all you need to care about past that point because the stack view will go ahead and put things in a stack for you, whether it's vertical or horizontally. And you have a bunch of options that even if you don't understand what they do, you can just flip through them until you find the one that works for you. Um, and that's where stack views really shine because they remove a lot of that complexity and make them make it simpler. Right. Yeah. It's pretty close to the way that, um, like V stacks and H stacks work in Swift UI where it's just kind of like, Hey, I've got the stack view. Uh, I'm going to have some sub views in this thing, lay them out for me. And it will try its best to, uh, like Dimitri said, based on like, there's like the distribution, the, um, alignment, I think are kind of the two biggest uh, ways that you can say like, fill this equally, fill it to the point where like, let the views kind of decide more. I think it's more or less let the views decide what kind of like size they want. Um, there are a couple other ones, but, um, that way There's all you have behavior if you don't have enough uh, room. Yeah. You basically just constrain. Let's, let's assume that you're using NS layout constraints. You constrain that stack view to the parent view. Uh, and then within the stack view, all of those like 17 sub views for that toolbar, like Dimitri said, this, the stack view just kind of manages that and says, I'll, I'll take care of that. And then you just save yourself 17 times potentially for, uh, constraints that you need to make, uh, for all of those sub views in, in the sub, in the stack view. So super great when, um, and, and sorry, I want to mention real quick. A, a really cool thing that you can do is you can have stack views and stack views, and that's where it can become a little bit more complex, but also you're very likely saving yourself time and complexity by making NS layout constraints uh, for each of those subviews. So you can, like, you could very easily, more or less, do what we do in SwiftUI, where perhaps you have, like, a, a V stack or a vertical stack view that basically spans the entire view, uh, the entire, you know, uh, window, the entire screen. And then within that have sub stack views that are either horizontal or vertical. And you can basically lay out your entire, uh, sort of view controller or page or whatever you want to call it, um, with those sub views. So they can be really powerful. Uh, once you get used to them, they are a little finicky, like Dimitri said, with the alignment and the distribution and everything, but it's also a very easy and quick thing to change. You could even do it in, in a storyboard and, and kind of most probably get those uh, a visual indication of what it would be in the storyboard. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, once again, this is where like SwiftUI one-ups uh, UIKit a little bit and that, oh, hey, you have stack views, sure, 
But if you want to add those margins, you don't need to like do anything with constraints. You just add a padding uh, and you're done with the margins. And then, oh, in your stack view, you want like things to be spaced a little bit differently. Yeah, just add some padding or add a spacer yeah. and you're done. Um, and the rest is, is there. However, uh, and this is the huge asterisk and like my pain point with SwiftUI um, is the stack views in SwiftUI do not have that distribution setting where you can fine tune exactly how things are going to like collapse or whatnot. Um, and uh, UIKit basically like gives you full control to this, whereas SwiftUI makes you uh, like try, okay, what if I fiddle with uh, frames with max widths and stuff like that? And <laughs> you have to really understand SwiftUI now <laughs> yeah. to like be effective at this. Um, and that's where SwiftUI stack views kind of fall apart because you have some very basic options um, with uh, with UI stack views that you cannot accomplish with SwiftUI stack views. Um, and uh, that's where like it would have been nice very early on in SwiftUI's history to have something like auto layout at the fundamental level. Like you have a fallback. Yeah. If you want to do something complex, it's possible to do it because you have a system that can describe complexity um, where it seems like uh, in SwiftUI, you don't have, you didn't have that system to fall back on if you ever needed to rely on complexity. Like at the end of the day, in UIKit, you could always fall back down to math, right? That was always a possibility. With SwiftUI, mm -hmm. you had very little view into what the layout system was doing in order to do that. Like you literally couldn't uh, in some cases, uh, because the system would uh, either cut you off from one of the directions, like with Geometry Reader, you basically can read from one direction, but then you lose the ability to uh, surface up from the other, um, and that's where things fell apart. And the nice thing about SwiftUI 4, whatever version we're calling it, um, mm -hmm. is we now have that layout protocol that can go ahead and allow us to finally describe with rigidity like how things flow in both directions. Um, and that's that missing piece that would have been really nice to have early on, um, but we didn't have until now. And therefore people came up with tons of hacks and therefore it became like a joke that uh, SwiftUI uh, is simple until it's not. Like you can't have two buttons that are equal. Um, and that's just yeah. how it is. <laughs> um, and although you can get reasonably close, like you just have to... Uh, decide, okay, I want both of these buttons to equal 200 pixels. And then within that, they can be equal just fine. But you can't really have one match the other up to like its optimal size without uh, without relying on that magic bit. Um, and that's where like this new SwiftUI layout uh, really comes and helps. Um, but uh, if you ever needed to do that in SwiftUI, you can always use UIView Representable and like have two hosting views and that you have essentially the same thing. Um, so that's where knowing how UIKit works uh, can be your to your advantage, right? Yeah, absolutely. And there are still views that aren't available in SwiftUI. Um, they're kind of escaping me right now. They're, I think they've added a, quite a few more, like progress view, I think, is one that is relatively new. An activity, a UI activity indicator just wasn't even a thing. Um, I think oh, you still can't maybe. get the large style, ironically. Enough. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> I know. Oh, they yeah, they do have styles, but it's like uh, either a normal spinner or like a progress bar. So yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, like SwiftUI isn't sort of uh, hasn't reached, I guess, feature parity with UIKit in that sense of having the same views, 
we're still reliant on on UIKit for a lot of those things. So um, there have been I, I in in LumaFusion there are times where we've had to use UIView representable or whatever. I always get those confused. But the one that you know you you pull a UIKit view into Swift UI, um, there are times that we've had to do that. So uh, it's definitely a a worthy endeavor to whether it's just to augment your Swift UI. Um, knowledge and skill set or if you do need to use um you know ui kit in in whatever capacity to learn about these things and we've got one uh, thing left to talk about which are scroll views but overall this this whole thing i mean I, I don't know if i'd necessarily say like you know go go study up on springs and struts for for a bunch of time but uh maybe that's just me uh, like being the kind of auto layout person that i am and kind of learned uh that way but ui kit in general i think is definitely something that's still it's still very much a relevant thing mm -hmm. and that essentially brings us to my like favorite view of ui kit and that is scroll views because it kind of brings all of this together um mm -hmm. and in an interesting way so uh Remember earlier when I mentioned that bounds don't always start at zero, zero, and one example of this is a scroll view, because as you scroll, it will literally move its bounds, and by moving its bounds, it will move all the views inside of it, and therefore scroll. Um, and this might, be, this might seem like a simple concept at first, but what the bounds then represents is a view into the scrolled content um, that can change yeah. over time, uh, if that makes sense. Uh, mm -hmm. And what this allows is all sorts of interesting scenarios. So for instance, take table views. Table views are a subclass of scroll views because it's really easy to compose these things in a way that uh, you can go ahead and figure out what the user is looking at um, because you have that content offset that it gives you and you can basically see, hey, is that content offset bigger than uh, this point, at which point I'm going to recycle this view and, pu and put it in a queue to be reused without removing it from the super view. It's still there. I'm just going to move it. Um, and by doing that, you've essentially built a recycling view table view. Um, and collection views do the same thing. And your own views can go ahead and do the same thing as well. So scroll views uh, give you a lot of robust control over um, like making... Uh, making things appear in a scrolled way uh, that can otherwise be complex, uh, especially if they don't fit well within the existing notion of like a collection view or a table view and you want to do something a little bit different. Um, this can be stacked with like zooming. And guess what zooming does? It scales the bounds uh, disrespective of the frame. So now instead of one point in bounds representing one point in the frame, one point in the bounds represents two points in the frame, meaning everything is bigger. Um, and it can be rendered appropriately because your subviews, they just think that they're bigger as a result of this. Um, or smaller. I, like the, the direction always confuses me because I am 100% <laughs> yeah. uh, horribly dyslexic. But um, uh, that, that is something you can just try both and see which one works. And you, you can get past that quite easily every single time. Um, but yeah, scroll views are great because they they really encapsulate how UIKit works at a fundamental level. And if you want to feel confident with UIKit, like if you can feel confident with custom scroll views, then I think you, you've you mastered UIKit to a certain extent. 
um, in terms of the layout and the views, not in terms of like all the view controllers they can potentially use. That's a completely separate uh, can of worms that we'll not get into today. Um, but uh, scroll views, they work with auto layout just fine. Uh, like you can constrain the inside of the scroll view just as you can constrain the outside of the scroll view and it will do what you think it will do. It will make the inside scrollable. So um, that's, that's all been hooked up uh, on your behalf already. You just need to go ahead and set things up so you can do it manually. You can do it completely custom. Uh, that's up to you. Yeah, that's, I, uh, that's, it's funny that you mentioned like that's, that's when you feel like you've mastered, um, UI kit because scroll views always have given me like the, the hardest time. And it's been a long time since I've used them. Um, but like you're saying, like you need to, you know, constrain the outside of the scroll view and you constrain the inside of the scroll view with the contents of the scroll view. That was always like something that I can never get past. So, um, I've got a little bit of work of, uh, with UI kit still to go. It sounds <laughs> like, because I, I, it was hard to get things to scroll. And I feel like I, last time I did it, which was years ago at this point, but I uh, just kind of had to throw constraints at the wall until some stuck and scrolled the way that I wanted them to. So, Yeah, uh, and scroll views are still one of those places where the Swift UI version leaves a little bit to be desired. Mm. Like you don't get any updates as far as like what the current scroll position is until you need to go ahead and like stick a geometry reader and then you lose all layout. Um, so that's like one of my first things that I will go ahead and make a UI view representable for, like tailored to what I need it to do. Um, but it's just basically going to wrap a UI hosting view um, and just like pass that through. Uh, and I would say that is the easiest way to go ahead and hook things up to your advantage because you can use all the power of a UI scroll view um, from Swift UI, you just need to go ahead and choose how you want to hook it up um, and which parts you're interested in. Uh, because the Swift UI one basically says, hey, is this horizontally scrolling or vertically scrolling? And the rest is up to you. Um, and yeah. you basically get no indication when like things are sticky and stuff like that. So um, all of that is entirely up to you to do custom. So uh, you can go ahead and get a lot of that for free just by wrapping a UI scroll view and surfacing the pieces that you really want to swift ui this week's episode of code completion is brought to you by sticky widgets sticky widgets is the absolute easiest way to put a sticky note on your home screen and edit it quickly it's so easy you never need to open the app itself add a sticky widget to your home screen through the ios home screen editor and tap on it to edit that's about it of course there's tons of customization options as well font color text size alignment all conveniently located in the system's edit widget interface Add as many sticky widgets as you like or put them in a smart sack. Sticky widgets are digital sticky notes for your phone. Use them however you'd like. Sticky widgets is a free download on the iOS app store and additional font and color options are available for a one-time in-app purchase. Thank you so much to Sticky Widgets for sponsoring Code Completion. Check out Sticky Widgets on the iOS app store today. And widgets are an example of a place you cannot use UIKit at all. Uh, yeah. Because it's entirely so UI. So... Uh, it seems more and more that you just kind of need to learn both. And mm -hmm. uh, even if you want to like be 100% Swift UI, you still need UIKit to make your app like 100% an app. Um, and that's the unfortunate truth. So uh, just like learning the math can help simplify how uh, auto layout works, learning UIKit can help simplify how Swift UI works. Um, and can make it a little bit easier to do things that you're trying to do without 
like some really crazy hacks of like trying to mess with geometry readers and preference uh, anchors and all those things are not documented. Yeah. Now, in my never-ending quest to home kitify my home, uh, we recently got an Ecobee thermostat, which I ripped nice. off my wall to show you. Um, so this is a uh, black puck. You can see through it. Um, and it just plugs into your wall once you do all the wiring. Um, and it's really neat because it is something that I can tell Siri to turn on the thermostat uh, without needing to uh, get up and go over to it and uh, turn it on. Um, but also it's really neat because it uh, will go ahead and if you set it to auto, like do things efficiently as much as it can, like take humidity into account when it's like deciding which temperature to cool down to. Um, it has sensors that you can test other rooms. It's not just the thermostat that's like testing the air. It can go ahead and uh, notice that the living room is significantly hotter and that needs to be cooled down for you to be comfortable um, and stuff like that. So uh, one really cool thing is it will go ahead and like hook into your local uh, like electricity provider and see if there are any rebates and just sign you up for a rebate, uh, which makes the device instantly cheaper. So uh, <laughs> if, if the price was something that was scaring you, that is a way around it. And it's not owned by Google or Amazon or any of these uh, companies yeah. that like to harvest tons of data for... Uh, who knows what reason. So if you want to kind of have a non-invasive device, uh, and we can maybe talk about some of that more later, uh, then this is a great device to have in your home. Nice. I uh, I have the, I would assume, older and littler brother of, of what you have. I have like the Lite 3 uh, version mm -hmm. that you could be. So it's great. That was... Uh, about the very first uh, modification to my home that I did when I got my home was rip out the the dumb thermostat and put that one in, and it's worked great ever since then. Um, I love just yeah, like you said, using it from HomeKit and not having it be um, tracked by any of those big companies. But like, it's so nice when I'm just like like I'll take so my the bathroom in my in the master bathroom or master bedroom yeah master bathroom whatever doesn't have a door it's just connected to my bedroom right and so um it gets drafty when i take a shower so i just turn the thermostat off from my phone so i don't get like cold air coming in through my shower and everything when i'm taking a shower and you don't have to run downstairs to do that in a towel or whatever uh it's just right there so uh definitely recommend getting a, a home kit thermostat it's great yeah, and you can you can one up that by getting one of those Qingping uh, like air quality mm. monitors, and if the humidity goes up, you can have that trigger your thermostat uh, to go ahead and and turn on, turn off the air, for instance, oh, uh, don't and then do you that can automate me. that that whole process. And that's the that's the dream of HomeKit devices. <clears throat> A little AC in my <laughs> office. Um, uh, I, I have some grievances I can share about that in a, mm. bit, a little bit, um, but. Uh, yeah, that's, that's something that a full thermostat can go ahead and do. And that's, that's quite nice. Um, I've also heard that the Ecobee thermostats can connect up to smart vents, um, which are a thing oh, cool. that can automatically open and close an individual room. So that way mm -hmm. the thermostat can go ahead and pump air into one room instead of all seven or 
can shift like, hey, this room is getting cold. I'll set this one to 50%. This one's 100%. Um, I'm mostly like wishfully thinking it can do all those things, but uh-huh. I imagine like the technology is there at this point uh, to be able to do that. So I have not like ventured down that route quite yet uh, because mm-hmm. all the little panels are like slightly somewhere like cut, like none of them are one shape. So I don't know if I'm going to go ahead and like do that. Um, and equally, I don't like putting batteries in things. Uh, like if some, I would like something to be wired mm-hmm. and not need to think about changing batteries. Uh, door locks are like enough for that. Um, so yeah, not sure. I want to go ahead and get vents that need mm-hmm. batteries that need changing. Uh, because like, oh, the vent needs changing again. Um, yeah. And then that's just that's, like a pain of maintenance, but yeah, that's the hindsight of already having the house and you know, you're not like building a house to be like, oh yes, let me put wiring through my air conditioning vents and everything. Mm-hmm. Like that'd be great. But you know, the house is already built. So you're like, oh, uh, that'd be, that'd be a pain. Like if I, yeah, you know, that's if when I you have build... multi zones, like from the beginning and then you have that mm-hmm. one, one big HVAC, but then it's just going, it's a different ducts that all have panels already. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if I were, you know, knew what I knew now, I would have ran, like, you know, weatherproof Cat 6A, you know, in corners of my house so I could put POE cameras all over my house. And, you know, it's like, I, I'm not going to put a battery-powered camera on the side of my house that I have to go get up on a ladder every six months to replace and everything. So, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm right. like, this close to getting those... You know those door things that like automatically close doors in offices? Yeah. Uh, I'm so close to installing them on my doors because then I can run basically a wire from my uh, stupid door lock to that, have it like go through the mechanism uh, and then out on the other end and have it be plugged into some power, DC power source that just supplies, I don't know, what is it, uh, six volts? um of like dc current to like the four like 1.5 volt batteries that would be there oh okay. um and then just not need to think about battery power ever <laughs> That's again awesome. um but it's like way more involvement than it needs to be and my I door know. is like falling apart anyways so i'm like mm, i'm just gonna wait um yeah. i am like slightly slightly glued to the idea that i can get a nice a nice door with like glass windows that have that like lcd frost uh oh frost so cool it. You know what I'm talking about, right? The yeah, ones yeah, where look. it's like with a flip of an electric current, it's uh-huh. transparent or opaque. Yeah, um, yeah. The and my my like dream, yeah, yeah. And my dream is to just be there on Halloween, and when people say trick or treat, I just like flip the thing. It's like <laughs> that's awesome. perfect. Best um, use. <laughs> yeah, scare every delivery person possible. Uh, it's like who's there? Kink. <laughs> That's so, awesome. <laughs> yeah, for that I would need electric current anyway. So at that point, I would think about just wiring mm. all that crazy stuff up. Uh, but yeah, uh, that's that's a different kind of problem entirely. Um, but yeah, the Ecobee has been has been pretty great. Uh, it supports. Hey, I know Siri. I don't want to say it like <laughs> as one phrase, but it supports that. Um, yeah. I have not used it. I have enough of those devices around the house that it doesn't need to really do anything. Um, it also supports like proximity sensing. So if people walk in front of it, it can go ahead and turn on lights. Um, I have also not used this because it's like in a hallway that's like three doors wide, um, Mm -hmm. that does not need lights to turn on for you walking by, uh, even in like the dead of night, 
just like the uh, lights from outside just kind of illuminate just enough. So um, I have not used those abilities. Uh, the one downside I would say is it doesn't give you any control. And I would say this is probably more Apple's problem than Ecobee's problem. Uh, but it doesn't give you any control of the fan without AC or heat. So you cannot say like turn on the fan um, or turn oh. off the fan. You have to go ahead and set up a shortcut that will go ahead and like set up and configure it in some special way. So uh, that was one issue. Um, but that's easily solved by setting up shortcuts for everyone in the house. Uh, so that way if they ask, it goes through their phone. And if you ask, it goes through yours. Um, so yeah, that was our way around that. But yeah, otherwise quite happy. Yeah. Yeah, you'll, uh, I don't know if you've got it recently, but like it'll also, I think it's maybe every season or so, it'll tell you um, like how much energy you save by, you know, using it because it's smart or whatever. But also like the percentage of like you're in the top X percent because of, you know, your energy usage. And uh, it's always fun to like see mine be like in the top 10% of like least energy usage in the winter because my house is cold. And then, like, being, like, the bottom 90% in the summer because I keep my house cold. <laughs> and my AC's running a lot. And I feel bad about it. But it's... I I get sweaty and it's gross. So my <laughs> my AC is on a lot. And I have a second air conditioner just in this room. A portable one uh, in my office when I'm working. So, But you kind of get cool insights like that. So it's it's been, uh, I think, overall a good thing. Um, yeah. Yeah, you have to get a mini split. And those they are like yeah. this room is so nice ever since we got one um grievances aside um mm -hmm. well so, maybe like, i'll i'll wait until like you somehow get through to them i know they don't have a presence on twitter they add home kit support and then i'll get it uh yeah i'll just you know benefit off of your hard work like i always oh, thank do. you yeah <laughs> uh so yeah with all that uh, out of the way, I want to personally thank everyone for listening in this week. Please be sure to follow us on Twitter at Code Completion to know when new episodes uh, go live. And feel free to tweet at us if there's ever a topic you'd like for us to dig into. Most importantly, as a small podcast, please be sure to share this with your friends and family. We're also interested in any pro part of the app development process. It's your support that enables us to continue doing this. And we want to grow a healthy community around everything we discuss. Once again, I want to give my thanks to Spencer, who's at Spencer C. Curtis. That's S-P-E-N-C-E-R-C-C-U-R-T-I-S on Twitter for joining me this week. My name, once again, is Dimitri. You can find me at Dimitri Bunyol. That's D-I-M-I-T-R-I-B-O-U-N-I-O-L. And we'll see you all next week. Bye. Bye. So, yeah. Grievance time. Hit. Yeah, hit me with your grievances. Okay, because obviously time. the company won't listen because they're not on Twitter. So uh, definitely no HomeKit support. Um, they did not even respond to me via email, so that's a thing. Uh, second grievance time. Uh, I found out if you just leave the AC mode on, uh, it will it will do what you expect it to do. It will kind of lower the temperature until it reaches its threshold, um, mm -hmm. and then it will turn off the compressor. The fan will still kind of circulate air, uh, and then as the temperature goes back up, it will turn the compressor back on, and then it will just like continue that process. Now, I found out um, via the little Qingping like monitors that every time this was happening, there was a spike in humidity. 
like mm. up until like 65 68 70 percent which is very humid um and i noticed this like like the only reason why i thought of this is because i went into the room at night and it was like damp and like <laughs> sticky and hard to breathe and i'm like yeah hmm, something something is off here uh so uh, I found out that whenever it needs to start, like, uh, or it, whenever the compressor goes off and the fan continues, it's somehow blowing the water it collected, right? It's still draining back into the room because all the air is like flowing right on top of it, and it's acting like a humidifier and a very effective one because it's a small room and <laughs> apparently it's like enough water that it pulled out to like r- like re totally. uh, fill the room with like tons of humidity. So, like, I start panicking because it's, like, a very damp, humid room full of electronics. I'm like, I am not happy with this situation. So, my first, like, instinct is maybe it's not draining on the outside. Um, yeah. And then uh, I, I did eventually realize it does drain fine. Like, I get, end up with, like, a half a bucket per day. So, it's it's doing its job pulling humidity out of the air. Um, and it is collecting outside. The next thing we thought of is maybe the unit is, like, not like angled perfectly to like evacuate the the water um and it seems like it is um because we like put it to level we disconnected and like did this so that way it like potentially goes towards the hose um we tried pouring water into it everything seems to work fine uh so whatever uh it is in there that's like collecting the water um that's just the way it is and it seems to be working as designed so uh, the last thing that this made us realize uh, was the unit did not come with filters that it says to change every two weeks. Um, and that was confusing oh. because I was like, oh, there are filters on top. And like, there's like a screen at the top of it. That, it turns out that's not the filter. There are like two filters that you should be able to like just put in. They just don't exist. So uh, that's a thing uh, that nice. we'll need to probably pay $8 for uh, to get eventually. Um, and yeah, yeah. Um, that's that's like the start of the the end of the grievance part. The thankful part is since this is a smart uh, thing with HomeKit support, even though there's no HomeKit support, um, the, it turns out that you can automate some things. Um, now, uh, the parts that you can automate, you have to understand a little bit of Chinese because out of nowhere, some of the properties that you can like do something based off of are in Chinese and that's just a fact of life. Uh, so as you make your little automation, you need to kind of navigate through that. Um, mm-hmm. And I think my, my years of like Japanese study and my one and a half years of Chinese study that can help me like navigate that just enough to know what the hell uh, I'm doing. <laughs> um, and uh, I was able to set up an automation that when it like goes above 80 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, it will turn on the AC um, and it will set the internal temperature to like Celsius because apparently when you set the temperature it has to be in Celsius, which is, I don't know. Cool. Um, so I had to do some calculations to get it to like 72 Fahrenheit, uh, whatever that corresponds to in Celsius. Um, and then when it drops below that temperature, I have it like automated to just turn off. Yeah. Um, and for the most part, this works. Like the humidity problem is completely gone. Um, and the room like is as I need it, um, and have a separate little uh, what are these called? Vornado fans, the, the little circular ones that like act more as a 
air bazooka than a circular uh-huh. fan. Like it just makes a column of air, uh, <laughs> which is very effective for like moving air around. Um, and that just like circulates the air internally um, and does a pretty good job of that. Uh, so yeah, that so, seems to work. So to those work. fans, I guess if the fan on the air conditioner isn't on, then it doesn't circulate that humidity. It just, yeah, so because there's no you, humidity to like capture, right? Right. So you're just using those other fans so that the air conditioner doesn't have to run and then give back all that humidity to the room. Exactly. Okay. Okay. Interesting. So, Interesting uh, workaround. <laughs> I mean, it works, but kind of a little yeah. bit of a pain, I guess. So, so there's one one uh, hang up on that, and you'll notice it the moment I forget to do it. Um, if I don't turn off the automation, uh, it goes beep, 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 oh. beep, beep, every time it turns on. And then it goes beep, beep, every time it turns off. And I'm like, why? That's super, like, it, I mean, my garage door will do that because it's like, I guess a person could get crushed under yeah, the don't garage get door. But well, like the little flap is going to crush you. Yeah. <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> so it's not like a disturbance elsewhere in the at, in the house. And I only noticed it like yesterday. So like I remembered to turn it off before we started recording. Uh, but yeah, I may forget in the distant future. So sorry about that in advance. Ugh, excuse me. No, it's all good. That's interesting. That man, that would be the point where I'm like, hmm, I wonder if I could just take a soldering iron and just like undo that small little, well, I don't know. I guess when it, you probably have a remote or whatever and turn it on, it makes a sound as well. That would annoy me though. Yeah, and you kind of need it with the remote because the remote is one of those like dumb IR remotes uh-huh. that you don't like, know if it, it actually. Yeah, you don't know if it actually connected or not. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. The yeah. remote seems to have like a mute button. I think the mute button is to like make the fan really quiet, though. It's not necessarily for the beeps. <laughs> uh, so maybe in the app they have something. I don't know. That yeah, seems it weird. Re- but... It requires some investigation. Thankfully, the app seems reasonably well written. Uh, just like mislocalized in some capacity uh, which is just life it's like a pioneer brand right yeah yeah i mean it's not like a completely random brand my stereo yeah. in my car is pioneer so there's it's that a different pioneer i think <laughs> oh is it do you think yeah no wow. so yeah it's his life it's his life well uh, so I guess uh, the follow-up question from this, this saga that we've been through for at least a week, I don't know. I can't remember. It's been a while. Um, are you gonna, oh no, you sent an email to them and they, they didn't respond. So there's yeah, like, no, there's no response, no strongly worded email even made a difference. No. And that one wasn't even strongly written. That was a, uh, please help. Um, yeah, no response. <laughs> no, dude. So yeah, uh, it's his life. the The unit works though, so I'm I'm aside from the part where it, like pumps humidity into the room. Uh, but except it, when it doesn't, it works. Um, which that workaround has a slight problem of beep. So uh, I will continue the saga until it's <laughs> complete. Uh, trying not Excellent. to bring out the soldering iron because that involves bringing the unit down, which means that I need to disconnect all the pipes that are all like oh, perfectly yeah. sealed and shit. So. Uh, that is not something that I'm going to embark on, I don't think. Uh, all I wanted was for this room to be cool no matter what, because it has all the expensive equipment in it, 
and yeah it's it's accomplishing that goal uh and for that i am more or less happy uh what i was like the ideal reason i wanted the home kit support was so that way the little uh temperature monitor can be the thing that controls it going on and off right rather than the one that's really high up on the ceiling that has more or less just hot air rather than mm-hmm. the ambient room air because hot air rises and cold air falls uh it reminds me of like when i worked in an office for whatever reason i sat at the part of the room where all the cool air collected and therefore <laughs> i was freezing <laughs> when everyone, everyone else was, was like fine. sweating uh so like that was that was the worst yeah Um, uh so the ideal is to have a thermostat where where the air collects so that way that can be circulated properly or the thing can turn on and off properly but Mm -hmm. uh in this case the thermostat is way up high uh and that's just the way it is um but yeah well stay tuned for uh episode what are we on three Four of, of Dimitri's... Uh... At, at least, me installing the AC was also part of this whole process. Oh, okay. So. All right, all right. So it's a, it's it, a it'll long, become a saga. saga. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, bye, everyone. Bye!